Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week a little early on Thursday, July 26th at 9.15 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And we are pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Welcome, Kimberly. I'm thrilled to be here. So it is summer, and hopefully the news will slow down soon, at least a little bit. In honor of being able to take a breath, we are planning a special episode to answer your questions. Is there some health policy quirk you've always wondered about? Something complicated you want explained? Send us your questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Maybe we'll use your question on our special podcast. In the meantime, more than enough news for now. Uh, first, Congress. We haven't talked about Congress in a while. This week marks the first anniversary of the Senate vote that effectively killed the Republican repeal and replace effort. And Democrats are hoping to run on that effort this fall. They already are. But meanwhile, action this week was in the House where Republicans have brought up a whole passel of health bills to try to demonstrate that they are doing something on health care. Kimberly, you've been watching this. What? Tell us what passed this week. That's right. And they actually had some bipartisan support on it. They ended up uh, passing a bill to permanently repeal the medical device tax as well remind, as... Remind people what the medical device oh, tax it's a, is. It's a 2.3% tax on the industry. The industry says that it is stymieing innovation, that it's getting in the way of planning for, uh, you know, future research because they've kind of had the bill or the tax suspended year after year. And this was put in the Affordable Care Act to help pay for the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. That's right. That's right. And so um, that money would then not go toward the ACA, but they haven't been collecting it for several years now. It's been suspended for a while. Um, And so other than that, there was a bill passed to uh, suspend the health insurance tax, which makes the health insurance industry uh, Same thing, part of the ACA to help pay for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it would be suspended in 2020 in 2021. It's also not being collected, right? uh, Currently? Yeah. No. (laughs) Um, So these are are taxes that were supposed to pay for the ACA that the people who were being taxed complained about, and so Congress basically has... Is at the moment not collecting them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and and they they argue that they need some certainty in order to you know plan and um, think about health insurance rates and premiums and and so forth because a lot of those costs get passed on to consumers. And then there was another. There was an HSA bill too, right? Uh, two. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, one of them allows HSAs to go toward paying for things like gym memberships and over the counter medication, and then the other one allows HSA plans to be added on to catastrophic coverage. Um, And the bill, in addition to that, allowed people over the age of 30 to purchase catastrophic coverage. So a lot of different things happening, some bipartisan support, but this was mostly a Republican push. Well, yeah. I mean, remind us again what what health savings accounts are. And Republicans have loved these for some years. That's right. right, That's right. It allows people to set aside a certain amount of their income that becomes tax free. And um, it's allowed to stay there. And uh, you're allowed to add to it as long as, you know, um, you use that and, and it stays tax free as long as you use that money to pay for health expenses. And actually, after you turn 65, you can use it to pay for anything, right? I think it's, I oh, think yeah? it's tax. Yeah, I think it's tax free. It's tax free going in. It's tax free coming out to use on health expenses. And mm-hmm. I think when you 
reach retirement age, it's tax-free for pretty much anything. I should go back and check that. But I know there's been, you know, the, the whole argument about using HSA money for basically wellness is is controversial, that, that there's an argument that it sounds good to use it for things like gym memberships and, and, you know, other things that would, in theory, keep you healthier. But that what they found is that with, with these wellness programs that a lot, of, uh, a lot of employers do, basically the people who were going to do that do and get a tax break. And the people who were not going to do that don't tend to, to do it. So it doesn't, basically all you're doing is giving a tax break to people who are already doing a certain behavior. Right, right. Well, I think that's what some of the studies have shown, yeah. And, um, and so what's what's the prospect for any of these bills getting through the Senate? Well, as far as the medical device tax in particular, the bill introduced on the Senate side was actually introduced by Democrats. Um, and they seem to be getting towards support, although what I hear from uh, the industry is that they are two Senate votes short. So maybe they'll get there. Um, but that's the one that probably has the highest prospect of getting through. Yeah, because that's, yeah, I guess it's mostly Democrats from states with big medical device makers in them who've been supportive of getting rid of the tax. Right? That's right. And that's why Minnesota. they've been so successful at suspending it so many years in a row. Yeah, because, because everybody likes benefits and nobody likes paying for them. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we will we will see how that moves on. Um, the, the rest of this episode I am calling follow-up because almost everything else that happened this week is an update to topics we've talked about in recent weeks, and you will see what I mean, because first we have risk adjustment. A couple of weeks ago, the health policy world got all worked up when federal officials abruptly stopped risk adjustment payments to health plans that participate in the Affordable Care Act. These are payments that take money from plans that enroll healthier-than-average patients patient populations and give it to plans that enroll sicker than average patients. Officials said they were given no choice due to a federal court ruling in New Mexico last February, but this week they basically said never mind and did what the judge in New Mexico uh, originally asked for five months ago, uh, explaining a little bit about why they created this formula the way they did and restarting the payments. Um, the the Trump administration said that not making the payments could disrupt the market for people who buy their own insurance, which is exactly the argument critics made a couple of weeks ago when officials stopped the payments. So, Anna, what just happened? <laughs> so the administration put out a final rule that tries to clarify some of their thinking on how they came up with the methodology to make the risk adjustment payments. And that was you know, what they think the judge in New Mexico was looking for to be able to move forward on these payments. Um, we don't know what the judge in New Mexico will think, but the the rule um, allows them to, or they're saying it will allow them to collect and make the payments in October. Um, I think these are usually done in August, but this so this will be done in and October. And these are this is billions of dollars we're right. talking about. Yeah, it's it's a lot of money um, that some insurers were happy not to have to pay, um, and others were upset that they weren't getting that money because essentially it's a it's sort of a balancing act between insurers and how their uh, their risk that they're they're taking on. Um, and so they explained in this final rule that the their um, their idea for these payments having to be budget neutral. So like I just mentioned, going from some insurers to other insurers is necessary um, because there weren't any, congressional payments appropriated um, or budgeted. And so that was kind of an issue that that the judge in New Mexico had. And and otherwise, that they were basing this methodology on the the statewide average premium. Um, So, you know, they explain in this rule that they, you know, they're I guess is an argument that some have made that it should be based on a company's premium. They said if they did that, they would have to go back 
um, you know, after the the payments were calculated and balance them and have sort of some sort of adjustment. And that wouldn't give as much certainty to the insurance companies. And so some of this explanation, there's trying you know, to make the judge comfortable with why they make these the, the methodology the way it is. But, but bottom line, I mean, it, obviously, individuals, this doesn't affect individuals in terms of what they pay or even taxpayers, because it's not, it's just money being exchanged between insurance companies. But it does add to this whole uncertainty about insurance companies who then aren't sure they want to participate in this market if the rules keep changing, or they don't know what to charge. So they end up charging more because they hate uncertainty. Right, exactly. And you saw um, yesterday when the Senate, or when the the other day when the Centers for um, Medicare and Medicaid Services put this rule out in their press release, you know, they said, you know, insurers should be assured that we um, are you know, are making these payments, and they should you know, be able to feel comfortable, obviously, based on that moving forward to participate in the market. Except for the three weeks when they weren't sure that right. it was going to happen. <laughs> so okay. they just gave them a panic attack for, <laughs> we're not sure why. <laughs> yeah, basically, we're not sure why. All right, well, our next update is about Medicaid work requirements um, and another court ruling. Last month, the federal district court judge ruled that Medicaid officials should not have approved Kentucky's plan to require many of its Medicaid enrollees to prove that they're working or risk losing their coverage. Uh, and late last week, after we taped, uh, Medicaid reopened the public comment period for 30 more days. Will this make things all better, Alan? Well, it's an interesting response to the ruling. So uh, for weeks, we've just been wondering, is the administration going to appeal the ruling? Are they going to try to fight it? Uh, Are they going to comply and not allow work requirements to go forward? Are they going to cancel them in the states and the other states where they've approved them? Are are they going to keep approving them for more states than the four that have already been approved? So it's been a big mystery. And so it's still somewhat a mystery, but now at least we know what they're doing for Kentucky. They're reopening the comment period just for 30 days because the judge really dragged them for not adequately considering all of the tens of thousands of people who are set to lose their insurance because of the rules. And that's by the state's own estimate. Advocates say it could be way more than, than what the state is estimating. And so they say, okay, we'll reopen the common period and we will more adequately consider and maybe that'll fly with the judge. Um, The other interesting thing is uh, there was some weird sort of political maneuvering around. So in response to the ruling saying you can't have your waiver and you can't have these work requirements and the other parts of the waiver right now, Kentucky's Governor Matt Bevin Um, chose to cut dental and vision insurance for adults on the state's Medicaid expansion, which was tens of thousands. hundreds of thousands of adults. And that just triggered a huge backlash that he was denying (laughs) medical uh, care to a lot of people and uh, was forced to walk that back and say, never mind. There was an amazing story in the Louisville Courier Journal last week, the the very day that this got reversed, about people who were partway through really expensive dental care or really elaborate dental care, a woman who was getting dentures, but she still had to have five more teeth pulled. So she basically only had five teeth and got caught in this when it got canceled. Suddenly, she couldn't she couldn't get dentures because she still had to have teeth pulled she couldn't get the teeth pulled i mean and literally that day the day that story came out Governor Bevan came in and said, oh, there yeah, maybe we should all sorts of horrible back. stories. The, the groups I was talking to on the ground was saying that um, some people had to have a dental evaluation before they could be approved to have a different kind of surgery um, that was covered by their regular medical care, but because they couldn't have the dental checkup because of this new policy that was all put on hold. And thanks to a computer glitch in the state system, a bunch of children were being denied uh, dental 
care because they were marked. Uh, they're, they're under Medicaid, but they weren't supposed to be affected by these cuts, but they were. It was a huge mess. He ended up walking it back. But what I thought was interesting was um, Kentucky was trying to argue in court and pressure the judge not to strike down the whole waiver by raising these issues, saying you're going to be uh, forcing us to cut either the Medicaid expansion entirely or cut some pieces of it because we won't be it won't be sustainable. We won't be able to pay for it without this this waiver in the work requirements. We should remind people at this point that the federal government is still paying, I think it's 92.5% of Medicaid costs for these these sort of the the people who would be affected by the work requirement. Right, right. And many studies that we've discussed have shown that uh, Medicaid expansion has not bankrupted states like um, these folks are claiming. It's, in fact, been an economic benefit. But Governor Bevin did run um, vowing to, to, you know, get to... Pull Kentucky out of the out of it ran its own exchange originally under the Affordable Care Act, and they're not doing that. And he ran on sure. canceling the Medicaid expansion. Sure, which all of this sort of so he he when elected governor, he did not cancel the Medicaid expansion, and this attempt to cancel just the dental and vision uh, parts of it ended up he walked that back. So it just calls into question if this waiver doesn't happen eventually, will he cancel the Medicaid expansion? He's walked back some of the threats before. Um, and the attempts to uh, I wrote about how the attempts to argue in court based on these threats were not successful with the judge. All right. Well, an- another place we need to follow up is on drug prices. Um, we've spent a lot of time these last few months talking about that. And last week, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb took some small but concrete steps to address at least part of this oh-so-complicated issue. Anna, you're our drug price expert. <laughs> what is it in English that, that <laughs> Scott Gottlieb says he's doing? Um, so it was interesting, the um, the comment period on President Trump's blueprint to bring down drug prices had ended that Monday last week. Um, and then that's the that's the big the, the, this huge, you know, plan that's going to that's going to bring down drug prices across the board through doing hundreds of different things. Right. And that they rolled out in May. And, and it's more sort of suggestions and possibilities, not a, something that's actually happening. But what we saw um, Dr. Gottlieb talk about was two things that, you know, they're they're getting moving on. Um, one of those is drug um, importation possibly um, from other countries if there is um, there are certain circumstances, one of those being that there's a very large price increase and that only one company sells this drug. These are usually generic drugs that have one company who still makes it. Other companies may have dropped out because it's just not profitable. Or you have sort of the venture capital types who come in and say, oh, we can just Increase the price. The Martin Shkreli's. The Martin Shkreli's, exactly. Yeah, Farmer Bro. Buy the, right, buy, buy the company and raise the price 5,000%. Exactly. Um, and so they're trying to get at those those type of things by saying they're forming a working group to look at possibly importing from other countries if that's something there is a, a Martin Shkreli-like scenario. Or a drug shortage, um, or, right? Or a drug shortage, although you could already do it um, for it. It was something they had have done very rarely for drug shortage issues. Um, and so... That was really interesting because um, Republicans, either F- the FDA, even under Democrats as well, has resisted any kind of reimportation. Um, and I've covered this issue since 1999, and every single FDA commissioner, starting Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, has thought this was a 
that that importing that allowing people to buy drugs from outside the country is dangerous because it breaks the chain of custody of the drugs. Right. Exactly. That that the U.S. doesn't have the same sort of oversight over those drugs. Um, and so, the uh, Alex Azar, the HHS secretary, put out a statement saying, "I've asked Dr. Gottlieb to form this working group." So it's sort of like well, because the president was, thinks this is a good exactly. Idea. So there was there was a, a push there to the FDA, and then. On the other side, um, he did something on what are called biosimilars. These are um, generic versions of really complex drugs we call biologics because they're made from living organisms. They're usually the ones that are injected. Um, you know, they're they're much more expensive. Um, so if you if you can get more biosimilars to market, which has been really tough, you could possibly bring down costs for a lot of people. The FDA um, has approved 11 biosimilars. There are three on the market. And Dr. Gottlieb um, is concerned that there are there is a lot of gaming by the brand name biologic drug makers to keep those off the market. So he's trying to talk to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, when he announced this last week, he hadn't met with them yet, but said he was going to, to try to talk to them about um, – things they could do to go after some of these companies that are, are gaming the system. They do that by putting up, you know, walls of patents sort of last minute um, when maybe their when their patent expiration really should have been up um, is one of the ways. They also do it by making contracts with pharmacy benefit managers and insurers to only sell their brand name biologic drug. Um, and so he wants to take a look at those And these things. are the ones that cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars yes, a month yes, that yeah. people need. And either, so hundreds of thousands yeah, Either a year. cancer treatment or, or for ongoing major chronic conditions. Rheumatoid arthritis is a big one. Um, Humira is the best-selling drug in the world. And it's, it's extremely expensive and has no generic competition. And then we saw um, the Department of Health and Human Services put out a um, well, they they said we saw a, on Office of Management and Budget's website that they submitted for review a rule on rebates. Um, this are these are the discounts that drug makers offer pharmacy benefit managers to get better access to patients, essentially. So um, they they're blamed for keeping drug prices high, and that's because there's not really an incentive for the drug makers to lower the list price, the price they set. There's just an incentive for them to give a bigger rebate to PBMs, and then they don't have to get that rebate to the patients. They don't have to pass it on. Um, and so this like would... Our theme this week is a lot of money moving around within players in the healthcare system, <laughs> not back to the patients. <laughs> yes, exactly. The well, these are allowed through safe harbor um, to a to kickback laws. Um and so Meaning that if you're giving money to somebody, we won't throw you into court. Right, yeah. Something you're not allowed to do usually, but there is an exemption for these. And so they want to remove that safe harbor exemption. We don't know exactly how, um, but they want to replace it with something. And we also don't know exactly how. That's, that's the most we know right now. Um, and so everyone's sort of waiting to see that rule get through the Office of Management and Budget and come out. Much more, much more work for health lawyers and lobbyists. All right. And, and our final follow-up for the week, there are still hundreds of children who cross the southern border of the U.S. who are in the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. The fate of these kids has faded a bit from the front pages as other news has taken over. But, Alice, you've been following this. And today is the deadline, right, the court order deadline for these kids to be reunited. And that's apparently not going to happen. So the... It's going to happen for those that the administration has deemed either 
currently or permanently eligible for reunification. And in the group that they say are ineligible, it's a whole slew of reasons, um, including things that they're blaming on the parents themselves, having a criminal record, allegedly being some sort of danger to the child, although the groups suing over this have said that they haven't provided proof of those criminal records for them to vet, also, vet and verify. Have hundreds of these parents been deported? Yes. they. <clears throat> well, so the administration revealed in court earlier this week that more than 400 ha- are no longer in the country, but they just couldn't say whether they uh, signed papers for voluntary departure or were forcibly deported without their children. There is still a lot of confusion. These numbers are changing every single time. I've Luckily, the court that's handling this, they let media dial in, listen live to the arguments, which is just great for those of us on the East Coast to follow every update. That's right, because this is happening in Texas? San Diego. Oh, in California. Yes. Um, and so every day there's been different numbers m- shifting explanations. Um, And so today is the deadline. And today, many, many families will be reunited. The fight now is over those that the administration is saying are ineligible for reunification, either because they can't be found or they say that there's some sort of criminal record that bars reunification. There's another fight over more than 100 parents that the administration claims have waived their right to reunification. And the ACLU submitted more than 100 pages of testimony yesterday from uh, attorneys who've interviewed these parents saying that they had no idea what they were signing. They were given these papers. They were scared and desperate. The papers were in English or they were in Spanish, but these people speak an indigenous language. They were pressured and misled. They were given mere minutes to make a decision. They thought they were signing papers saying, I do want to be reunified, when in fact the papers said the opposite. Um, so there was a lot of language like intimidated, coerced <laughs> within within this affidavit. Very striking. Um, and so I, I expect there's going to be a lot of fight over that in the weeks to come. And still hundreds of families separated. I was going to say, we're still talking about, oh, yes. like a thousand kids, I think, as of yesterday. Still. It, it's it's in the 900s that, that they're saying will not be reunified by today. And some, who knows if they will be at all. More for the Department of Health and Human Services to do. Um, so that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others might want to read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to start this week, Anna? Sure. The um, So my story is a Kaiser Health news story. Um, Deja Voodoo, Pharma's promises to curb drug prices have been heard before. So I thought this was an important um, look back at, you know, 30 years of high drug prices and promises um, of these drug makers to bring the prices down. Um, and that kind of just resulted in political theater. They brought them down for a very short period of time. Um, and so I think it's worth a read just to remember that, um, you know, we've, all, seen, this <laughs> we've seen this before. Exactly. <laughs> Alice. So if you, like me, have been wondering, wait a minute, didn't Maine vote overwhelmingly last a year, almost a year ago, to expand Medicaid. What 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 happened there? Why why don't they have Medicaid expansion yet? Um, this uh, New York Times story does a good job explaining what is happening. Uh, it's called a vote expanded Medicaid in Maine. The governor is ignoring it. That's 
that says it all. The governor is ignoring it. He's fighting in court to uh, to avoid implementing it. Uh, he says that the legislature has not appropriated the money for it, so it would be irresponsible for him to implement Medicaid expansion that his constituents approved. Uh, the legislator actually did vote to appropriate money for it, but he didn't like the way they did it, so he's still not doing it. And did so, he say he would go to jail before he, he would expand? He did, it? and the advocates said we would love that, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I don't know if that's likely to happen. Uh, it's before the state superior court right now, I believe. Um, so that's going to drag on. Really, he's just sort of running out the clock until he's out of office. He's term limited out of office. And we'll we'll see what happens because the Democrat running to take his seat says, I will implement Medicaid expansion day one if it's not done by the time I'm elected. And the Republican is on team Governor LePage and says, no, this is not not the right thing for our state. Um, And so this article also goes into fears that this battle in Maine will scare people people in other states away from implementing it or trying to pass Medicaid expansion by ballot initiative. That's right. We've got three states now who have it on the ballot this fall, I think. Uh, yes. So uh, Nebraska is Idaho. still working on it. Idaho. <laughs> Montana just cleared their threshold, right, for I signatures. Say, yeah. So uh, this experience in Maine shows that even if you pass it, it's not a done deal necessarily if there's folks in power who want to stop it. Do it. Kimberly. Um, Yeah, so one of the reasons I picked the story I picked today was because this has been a story I've been dying to write, but um, I'm sure they've done a better job than I ever could have. The AP Tom Murphy's story about healthcare industry branches into fresh meals, ride to gym. Um, You know, a lot of health insurers are now paying for, you know, those basic services that keep people well, that keep them out of the hospital, even if it's just visits to someone who might, you know, be living kind of in isolation. Um, And it's just really fascinating to see how, um, you know, the definition of healthcare and wellness is really beginning to shift because um, they're realizing that investments on one end can really help save costs in the long run, and it'll make uh, their customers happier as well. It's interesting to to see insurance. I mean, there's a lot of talk about social determinants of health and, you know, things that that in principle society should be doing to keep people healthy. But these are insurers who are actually ponying up to pay for this stuff. Exactly. Well, mine is from 538.com. It's by Anna Maria Berry Jester, who was on the podcast last month, and Amelia Thompson DeVoe. And it's called How Catholic Bishops Are Shaping Healthcare in Rural Rural America. It's kind of an update of a story that I did several years ago about how Catholic hospitals are increasingly becoming the only hospitals in rural areas, and that means that not only services like birth control and sterilization become unavailable since it violates the Catholic Church's ethical and religious directives for medical care, but also some types of -of end-of-life care and care for transgender people and even vasectomies. Uh, There have been cases of pregnant women having miscarriages being required to wait for the fetus to deliver naturally rather than have a medical procedure to ensure the woman's safety and future fertility. The question here, obviously, is whether some hospital care is better than no hospital care, but often people aren't aware of some of the limitations that are uh, available from Catholic health facilities until it's too late. Um, That is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Olstein. At Leonard K.L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.